Hi, I'm Jessie Servio-Ortiz, the Managing Director of the Wisconsin Sustainable Business Council and your host for the Sustainability Strategy Summit. This series is really meant to help you see what's going on across Wisconsin and to help you be a better influencer for sustainable change. We want you to break through your barriers and help improve your impact. We want to invite you to join our community as a member and be a part of the movement that's driving sustainable change across Wisconsin. You can find more information at wisconsinsustainability.com. Enjoy the interview. Welcome to the Sustainability Strategy Summit. Today's interview is with August Ball, founder and CEO of Cream City Conservation and Consulting and Cream City Conservation Corp. Welcome, August. I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Can you start by telling us a little bit about your company and the work that you do? Sure, sure. So, um, Cream City Conservation is basically an accident. Uh, I started it in uh, August of 2016 um, after uh, finding out that the uh, National Conservation Corps program that I was running for a nonprofit was going to be closing its doors in Milwaukee. And so it was never intended to be a, a business or a full-time thing. It was just my initial means of keeping some of the young people who were crew members involved in hands-on service to public lands. And as I was doing this, I realized that a lot of, uh, I, I had already been familiar with, you know, just the demographics of the environmental industry. And, you know, it was really, you know, working to change that through that National Conservation Corps program. But I realized that unless we were actually helping the existing institutions develop cultures and practices that helped retain talent, that helped make them ready for this, you know, this new generation of environmentalists, uh, you know, all of the work to cultivate interest and love for nature and sense of, um, you know, responsibility for caring for our natural resources, it would all kind of be in vain. So, Cream City Conservation is a two-pronged social enterprise, meaning we are not a nonprofit. Uh, we are a, a pending deep work at the moment, uh, but the, the intention behind it is to help provide education and consulting to environmental organizations, be they non-for-profit, government entities, um, uh, corporations who work in the environmental space, uh, to be able to evaluate their existing uh, policies, practices, mindsets that are keeping them racially homogenous. And then we use the profits from that work to provide paid training and employment opportunities for young adults right uh, here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, the ancestral lands of the Menominee and the Potawatomi, among other tribes. So yeah, that's kind of, you know, we, we started this in 2016. My, my current uh, uh, project, project coordinator who assists in running the Conservation Corps program is a uh, returning core member who started with me when she was, I think, 15 or 16 years old. And I'm uh, really excited to, to see her grow and have her take over the conservation side of things so I can focus on the, uh, the consulting side. But uh, yeah, this, this season we've got about 45 young people in the field doing all sorts of things from green infrastructure to trail maintenance, uh, invasive species removal, uh, wetland monitoring, wildlife biology. So 
yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun time. Awesome. I love that you're an entrepreneur by accident. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> right. Like that wasn't yeah. your goal and that it just not at all. <laughs> I, I come from a family of nurses and entrepreneurs. And so I didn't want to do either of those things. <laughs> and yet here we are. <laughs> oh, I can so relate to that. I have entrepreneurs in my family as well. And I very much have that spirit in all that I do. So yeah. Uh, oh, so I, yeah. And, you know, the term sort of social entrepreneur comes to my mind in the way that I think about what you do, but I think this model is really important and really effective in transforming sort of the change that a lot of us want to see. And, you know, the nonprofit model of seeking outside funding is not very sustainable in and of itself. And so, uh, yeah. you know, using your business as a force of good in the profits from that business to fund, you know, young people getting connected to nature and doing service work is, I think, just such a beautiful thing. Yeah. And, you know, philanthropy can be great. Uh, in my experience, unfortunately, though, oftentimes um, philanthropy can be part of the problem. Um, so when someone else is controlling the purse strings, there can be a lot of dictation around how programs are ran or, for example, um, there's there's a certain components that I, I have some curiosity around, like how did that foundation acquire their wealth? Um, and sometimes some of the foundations will approach this work and say, okay, August, here's 25 grand, go solve systemic racism in two months, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and give us weekly reports, right? Um, it also tends to put the focus on quantity over quality of the work. And so somehow, you know, the work that maybe one small nonprofit is doing that's connecting deeply with 10 young people and inspiring, you know, lifelong change, somehow that seems less impressive to a lot of funders, you know, for example, who are looking for, you know, 150 young adults being engaged at, at a much surface level. Mm. And again, not to say that that's always the case, but that right. definitely has been my experience of having worked in the nonprofit space for over a decade. Yeah, I could definitely see that, you know, sort of the, the hidden agenda potentially sort of running some of or dictating some of the work versus really to your point, um, you know, you're building leaders of tomorrow <laughs> just by, you know, really helping cultivate connection and skills um, that these young people can take in to their life for the rest of their lives. Yeah, you know, and I don't want to take too much credit for the awesome work that the young people do. I, I, I like to see myself as, as a door kicker <laughs> in a way, right? Like they, they already come to us having everything they need, um, their whole beings. It's just that oftentimes because of ageism, because of, you know, regionalism, I, I, they're often not, the skills that they're bringing to the table are not, they're not valued for, I think, what they, the perspective that they're bringing. And we, we tend to do that, I think, as a society where, if someone doesn't fit a certain mold, we, we don't see the value of difference. And um, so really, you know, we're just creating opportunities for exploration. Some of our young people, you know, we work with folks, you know, 15 to 25 on average. And some of them simply want to try out a career in the environment industry. They might want to go into water. They might want to go into food sovereignty. They might want to focus on land management and, and restoration. There's a, you know, 
And some of them might say, you know what? I still want to go be a teacher, but I'm going to compost, right? Or I still want to go be a nurse, but I'm going to, you know, when I become a parent, bring my kids out and do some invasive species removal or uh, do wetland monitoring. Um, and to me, that's still a win, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think that there's there's a lot of different entry points that people can have in this work. and Or someone might say, I want to be an architect or I want to work in marketing. You can still have an environmental job in those spaces. I, I believe that what we need is we, we need a critical mass of people on, on the mat, on the rug, so it can't get pulled from underneath us. Like we need everyday people to see mm -hmm. themselves as environmentalists, even mm -hmm. if they are not uh, in a what would be considered a traditionally environmentalist career. Yeah, that's such a great point. I have so many young people that reach out to me to say, how do I get a career in sustainability? And, you know, that's kind of exactly what I say to them. It's like, you know, what are your skill sets, your interests, your hobbies? Like, how can you make that your job and bring sustainability to it, right? Like, it doesn't have to be that you have to have the title in sustainability. If you love marketing, do marketing for, you know, I don't know, an outdoor absolutely. company or yeah, <laughs> absolutely. If you love fashion, get into sustainable design. You know, there's there's yeah. a woman in Milwaukee right now, um, Vanessa Andrews. She runs Madame Chino, and literally her whole business model is taking scrap fabrics, right, and, and turning them into beautiful garments. Mm. Um, you know, there's there's so many ways for us to to engage in sustainability. Um, yeah, and so. Yeah, I, I think just like I, I believe everyone should should be feminist. <laughs> I think everyone should be an environmentalist. <laughs> so that leads me to a great question. Can you share like what is your definition of sustainability and what does that mean to you? Yeah, you know, I, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with the term sustainability, and, and I'll tell you why. So if, if you're in a relationship, um, a marriage, uh, dating, and someone asks you, how is it going? If you say we're sustaining. Yeah. Right, like that doesn't seem very exciting, right? Right. Like, we want to be thriving, so um, so ideally, we, I I'd like to see us get to the point where we are focused on thriving, right? We're not there yet, <laughs> um, but when I when I truly when I hear sustainability, at first blush, you know, my interpretation of it is essentially we are making sure that we are utilizing our natural resources so that generations after can also use them, right? That we're not taking more than we need, that we are sustaining um, and able to sustain for generations to come. I also, you know, to borrow uh, some words from, uh, from, from uh, a book called Me uh, White Supremacy, I'd love for us to think of ourselves as ancestors too, mm, right? Like mm -hmm. in terms of like with the decisions that we make, thinking of how is this going to impact the generation after me? What can I do to make sure I'm I'm creating an environment that allows for thriving for the next generation and the next? Um, I think if we all were to, you know, spend a little time focusing in on value creation and how essentially, you know, how can we make sure that the next generation will, will go farther and will struggle less than the one before it mm -hmm. um, in all fronts, then I think that it lightens the load, right? When we have mm -hmm. more people carrying it. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's what means to me. <laughs> Great. And I, I love that, just the image and the thought and the feeling I get really when I think of thinking of myself as an ancestor and I think of, you know, my children's children and how do they talk about 
you know, me and the legacy that I left behind. And not only that, my generation, right? <laughs> How do they yeah, exactly. speak about who we were and what we did? Um, oh, I just think that's a beautiful lens. So, you know, it, speaking to this and thinking about workforce and, you know, sustainability professionals inside of organizations, like what can they do and what strategies are you seeing in supporting businesses and really advancing this inside of organizations, advancing sustainability? Yeah, well, I think the very first thing is, is to brace for impact. Mm. And what I mean by brace for impact is that coming to terms with the reality that the world of work, regardless of the industry, has been designed by and for white middle-class norms mm. means that we have to completely shift the way we've traditionally thought about the workforce, how we've thought about labor, right? Um, and that that can be really uncomfortable. And I don't care mm -hmm. how much someone says, oh, I love change and progress. None of us love change. Right? No. Change is uncomfortable. Right. <laughs> right. Just simply getting our minds, our bodies to do something differently than what it's been doing every day of life. Like that takes some shifts and we're not going to do that perfectly every time. So, so even within that frame, we have to offer ourselves some grace and know that like, just because we make a mistake doesn't mean we are wrong. Right, even though we oftentimes are, we, we get this messaging, right? That if it's not perfect, we shouldn't do it at all. Uh, or that if we, gosh forbid, we make a mistake, that we are fully wrong rather than we're learning and we're unlearning. So I think the more we can be prepared for the impact of change, the more likely we are to welcome it. Mm. Uh, rather than thinking, you know, we're going to do this and it's going to be smooth sailing. And, you know, if we hit a road bump, we'll just, you know, bulldoze through it or we'll deal with it. We get there. I, I say, expect the road bumps, <laughs> right? Like prepare for them, not, not if they happen, but when they happen. And so having a different mindset around what do we do when we, when, when the traditional ways of doing things comes to head with the reality that they're actually causing harm, that the way that we do onboarding actually doesn't really work that that for example even the the tactics that we've been implementing to um, promote opportunities actually are still benefiting folks who come from a certain socioeconomic background for example mm -hmm. like for example a lot of organizations have reimbursement um, practices around education and professional development that's a very middle class norm to assume that everyone has the capacity to upfront the cost of professional development or or education and then wait X amount of months or even years right to get reimbursed. So who's going to benefit from that? Right? Mm -hmm. uh, even when it comes to neurodiversity, this assumption that, oh, well, I want to I want to hire people who I, I want to go grab coffee with or hang out with on the weekends that significantly discredits the value of, of folks who are bringing neurodiversity to the table who they might not be as successful in those social environments but yet are really good at you know very heavily tactile like tasks and, and doing repetitive things right so um but if we're not designing a world that's inclusive if we're just kind of these putting these proverbial ramps in you know to, to try to fix things rather than simply building accessible workforce practices from the get-go 
you know, it's supposed to be disrupted and dismantled, which though like, well, everything's fine for me. So if it's not actually looking at, okay, who's, who's our work and, and literally saying, maybe we are actually institutions accessible for this one particular avatar, but instead what a lot of organizations and people do is say, they, they, well, these are clearly the only people qualified and interested, which is a very lazy way of excusing our behavior, mm. right? And excusing our, our failures to be inclusive. Yeah, absolutely. I actually recently just had a conversation with a CEO that was saying exactly that. Like, it's so hard to go to my HR director and say, I know this is what you've known for your whole career. <laughs> and this yeah. is what you've done. And it's, it's yeah. like all of a sudden asking them to change the game, right? It's like, okay, you've been playing football and you're yeah. really good at football for all of this time. And now all of a sudden I'm going to ask you to play soccer. <laughs> like the right. way that right. all of this, the, the way that we've Absolutely. been thinking about this has, has, is to your point, it's not working right now. And the workforce challenges we're seeing everywhere are a clear indication of that. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and, and I think historically HR departments, even though they're, you know, human resources is in their name, their role traditionally has been to protect the company. It mm. hasn't really been to protect people. Mm -hmm. So, you know what I mean? So, so we're, we're, we're moving, as you said, we're moving from, from, from playing, you know, football to soccer. We're also moving from playing defense and offense to, to literally neither of those and working collaboratively, <laughs> right? Like it's, it's no, there is no us against them. Right. Um, which totally takes time to, to shift our thought process around. And learn new ways to your point, right? Yeah. Like, you know, we have to learn new ways of, of being and that's uncomfortable. And I mean, you know, I, I work in this intersection of change and can admit that change is even hard, for, hard for me, right? Like understanding yeah. that climate is this big issue and that, yeah, we might have to give up some comforts or, you know, be really willing to be open and honest about our thoughts. Yeah and feelings mm -hmm. and biases and beliefs that could be holding our companies back. <laughs> yeah, well, I think there's even certain mindsets around sustainability that are keeping us um, from creating connection, right? Just even the very notion that you or I can, and this might sound, this, this might be controversial to some, but that you or I can stop climate change. Mm -hmm. um, there's absolutely things that we can do, but we also have to be honest with ourselves of the realities that literally 10% of the world's, the world, right? Like wealthiest people are producing almost 90% of uh, mm -hmm. uh, our, our greenhouse gases. So if we can, and instead what we do is we, we shame, you know, the single mom that's coming from her second job at the grocery store for using plastic bags, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Like mm -hmm. that's who we target. Uh, rather than just saying, you know, how much how much mercury is getting dumped into our waters, like, it, it, like really like voting accordingly, holding our our corporations and our institutions accountable. Um, but but there's a whole there's a whole powerhouse behind misinformation, behind making us think that you know, like we as individuals, like, and it's 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 a two edged it's a double edged sword, right? Because Yes, we want people to recycle. We want people to be to reduce their waste. We want people to be mindful of the impacts that their lifestyle has in the world, right? Like we know us as Americans specifically, we take up a lot of space, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like with the way we live. That is true. Um, and and so and so like two both the, both those things can be can be true at the same time. 
But if we're talking about how do we move the needle the most, right? How do we how do we move it faster, um, deeper? We really have to look at where who holds the most power, um, and start having conversations around that. But I don't know. I don't know if we're ready to have those conversations. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think some people are not, not everyone, of course. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, you know, I want to ask about how can sustainability professionals, right? Like we've had this triple bottom line, you know, phrase around sustainability mm-hmm. for a really long time, and that's people, planet and profit. And yet sustainability inside of organizations focuses so much on the environmental side. Somebody else focuses on the profit side. Somebody else is the people mm-hmm. side, right? Like yeah. who is that to your point? So yeah. how do sustainability professionals and just our career in discipline, how can we help to, you know, either advocate for this more collaborative approach inside of our organization to really take on the people as a really important part of sustainability? You know, Jesse, I think it comes down to shifting mindset again. Mm-hmm. Like, just like with diversity, right? It, it can't be the chief diversity officer's job to promote belonging and mm-hmm. equity in an organization. Everyone in the organization has to see that as part of their role, much like safety. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, like, right, like we need to see, we need, we, need, we need OSHA 30 and OSHA 10 to have the same weight as like emergency mental health, right? Mm-hmm. We, we, need, we need to, um, like sustainability shouldn't just be the, sustainability, the chief sustainability officer's job. That needs to be everyone's job, right? Yeah. And, then, and as long as we continue to put these focus areas in these little silos, like we do finance, like we do HR, and that's the thing, we're trying to, we're trying to use outdated models for functioning. And we're trying to also think that, oh, because these models work for these categories, they should also work here. If we can have a, a step one through five that's going to get, and that's linear, that's going to get us to our goals financially. Well, naturally, that's automatically also going to apply to human behavior. And we just know that we know that that's not true. It's not a linear process. Mm-hmm. I wish it was a linear process, right? Like, I wish I could say, take this workshop and this workshop, and then you can check out. You're good to go. Here's your certificate. It does not work that way. And so, until we get everyone on board, and maybe not even everyone. We just need a critical mass, <laughs> right? Because I don't think we're- The 80-20 rule, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We, need to, we just need that 20%, I was that 80% of folks um, or even like a 20% of folks who hold the most power to change too. Mm-hmm. That, that could also work, I think. Yeah. Um, but definitely we, we need to stop kind of veering off folks into pockets when it comes to sustainability and when it comes to diversity and equity. Uh, this has to be baked into uh, our entire, you know, our our entire focus. And like, it needs to be on people's job descriptions. It can't just be what I oftentimes see too with with various organizations is diversity, much like sustainability falls on the shoulders of some individual who's personally passionate about it. And so they end up doing a lot of labor that's uncompensated. And most of the time, these are individuals who are already marginalized, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? So that's got to stop. That's uh, really got to stop. Yeah. So, you know, I know you work with a lot of different types of businesses and organizations. 
What do you tell leaders of organizations about, you know, if there's maybe some skepticism about this or some, you know, pushback? What do you, what do you tell them to sort of influence or try to get their buy-in around this is a really important workforce issue that they need to address in their organization to get to where they want to be in the future? Yeah, well, a couple of things. Um, one I'll say is that I can always tell when an organization is not ready to begin mm-hmm. the work or to do the work if their priority is maintaining comfort, mm-hmm. right? If they if they say, well, we just want to make sure every, no one gets uncomfortable, we want to make sure no one is upset, no one feels hurt, um, then I then I say you are not ready to engage in this work. Then this work is disruptive. Mm-hmm. Uh, because whether it's you know sustainability or equity, shifts need to happen. And again, much like riding an old bike, you're shifting gears. It's gonna, it's not gonna feel smooth, right? Um, and, and all we can do is prepare for that, right? Be make sure we're not going over a, a speed bump the moment that we're shifting gears. But so yeah, so so it comes down to bracing for impact and letting everyone know, hey, brace, <laughs> like this is coming but we're gonna be okay, right? We're not bracing to run into a wall. We're simply bracing for, for a bump and more and more bumps are gonna come. But the more accustomed we get to navigating those waters, the more equipped we are, right? Like what's that saying? Um, smooth, smooth seas don't make for skilled sailors. Mm. Um, so, that's, so that's one is just, you know, it's a muscle that we have to build, right? Just like when I go to the grocery store, like the amount of packaging that comes, you know, with a product is a huge determining factor of what I buy. Now, that doesn't mean I do that perfectly all the time and I don't beat myself up for it, but you know, I, it, it, it takes a, a moment to shift, right? And I would also say in terms of being prepared, really eliminating this, this assumption that we, we can fit all this work into neat little bento boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes we have little committees and task forces that are, are leading the work, but they often don't have any teeth. Mm-hmm. And so then when, when other priorities are, are bubbling up, uh, oftentimes that, that work gets pushed by the wayside rather than seeing it as imperative, right? Like just because we have to meet a deadline doesn't mean we start requiring people to work 80 hours a week, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, we know that that's not sustainable. We know that that's not logical, nor is it often legal, right? And yet, so we don't, there's certain things we do not do this work also has to be non-negotiable that no matter what it's like we maintain an equity lens in everything that we do we don't just say oh well you know it's not convenient to be collaborative it's not convenient to share power it's going to take longer we want to get this deadline done it doesn't matter how fast you're running if you're running in the wrong direction so you know so that would be you know the, the priority thing and then to the leaders I, so I grew up in the Philippines. My family moved there when I was four. And there's a saying in the Philippines that, that goes, the fish rots from the head down. Hmm. So, and trust me, that has been a sobering thought that I have to keep in mind <laughs> with my own organization, right? Like when things aren't going well, it's like, that's on me. Where, where hmm. did I drop the ball? What, you know, what did I not communicate effectively? What can I do better? What did I not see coming? Right? And, mm-hmm. and, and so, so yeah, the fish rots from the head down. So if there are folks in leadership who are not invested in this, 
it's it's extremely difficult. I don't know if I can point to an example of where there has been success in any of the clients I've worked with, where there wasn't buy-in from from top leadership. Oh, absolutely. I see that on so many levels with different types of things, you know, whether it's sustainability or equity, right? Um, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So what about the flip side to that? What companies, um, can you speak to any examples that, you know, they are doing the work and they're seeing an impact in their organization because of it? Yeah. So, so I, I won't, you know, name drop, but there are some organizations that are are moving forward with the times and acknowledging, for example, that, hey, if we want to get information disseminated to young people, we have to go where they are. So where are they? They're online, right? They're on TikTok, they're on mm-hmm. social media. And gosh, that's not a strength that we have. We, we're, we're all middle-aged, you know, uh, professionals, parents even. Um, so not that, that that doesn't mean that we can be relevant, but uh, so essentially what one of the, ta- uh, the, the not tasks, but one of the um, tactics that I've seen uh, a client do is to literally pay for online influencers to say, rather than fighting this whole influencer movement, let's leverage it for good. Let's, mm-hmm. let's, you know, pay folks to create content and share it with their network, share it with their friends and families, share it with their followers, uh, what, and, and promote awareness around climate science, promote awareness around uh, in, injustices and, and, and social injustices that, that are occurring and that have occurred so we can build capacity and build awareness and build shared language. So, you know, there, I think that it doesn't have to be either or it can be yes. And like mm-hmm. we can, we can simultaneously work to disrupt problematic practices and cultures. And we can also simultaneously work to build a new world. Like, for example, I, I worked with an organization recently to provide um, OSHA training to my crew leaders. And a couple of years back, one of the facilitators either made a comment to the, the, the group, which is, you know, 50-50, you know, male, female or so. And the comment was something akin to, well, you know, this is just the culture and the trade. So, you know, women, you know, you're, you're going to have to, you know, mind your triggers and, you know, just, you know, like kind of brace for impact basically right and when I found that out you know that was an immediate like screeching halt and say no 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 no. we we are not preparing this next generation to tolerate sexual harassment on the job we are not preparing people we are preparing we are not toughening up our children for a tough world we are going to prepare children to be soft to be empathetic to be courageous like that that is that is we are going to build up a generation that will end all of this Mm -hmm. (laughs) right Mm -hmm. and have part of building up that next generation is literally just kicking down the door and getting out of their way Mm -hmm. (laughs) door that we put up by the way right right that that's my philosophy on it just create the opportunity you know share power and get out of the way Mm. love that What a great example. So, you know, part of what I see sustainability professionals job as, as being influencers of change Mm -hmm. and they don't always see themselves that way. So do you have any advice for the sustainability professional out there that says, you know, my organization thinks this, or the culture is this, and you know, how can they, how can they work from kind of the, the bottom up if they don't have that mm-hmm. top support to try to, you know, be an influencer and a, and a stand for, for change? Yeah, 
I think it can be the same way we build communication across difference, right? To figure out what is it that you value. So for, for a corporation, for example, what they probably value is profit and uh, perception, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that, that's the reality, right? If something is, a, if a solution isn't profitable, at least to the point where it makes, it, it, it can break even, <laughs> which is, you know, not profitability, but then it really can't be done. It, the, the cost does need to be covered somewhere. And the thing is, we know we know the money exists, right? Like we we see money get thrown away. Well, I would perceive it to be thrown away on things all the time. So, um, so rather than having a scarcity mindset around it, literally thinking about how can we shift some focus here, but but showcasing, right? Like there, there's no better um, way to to teach, I think, than to model um, mm-hmm. to, to model what we want to see, but also mm-hmm. to to really hone in on what someone values. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the experiences I had that showcase, showcases for me, I was leading a, uh, a conversation, a, a circling uh, exercise with folks from the community around um, uh, gun violence. And there was a, a Black woman, an older woman, probably, you know, had adult children. There was a younger, um, some younger folks as well. Uh, and then there was a, a white gentleman who was older as well and from somewhere in rural Wisconsin and the the black woman is from Milwaukee and we were talking each person gets a chance to talk and she mentioned that um, for her she would like to see more gun control because she had lost one child to gun violence um, literally by like a stray bullet (laughs) in the neighborhood she you know she was living in and one was severely injured through gun violence. And the, uh, the older white gentleman from uh, Northern Wisconsin shared how his first experience with guns uh, was going hunting with his grandfather. And he still has uh, that same rifle that he has you know, taken his son uh, uh, hunting and his now grandson hunting. And it's this family heirloom that is just connected to pride and, and memories and experiences. And so what I realized in watching this dialogue unfold was that at the core, both of the, the, the values, the, the concern that was on the table was family mm-hmm. for both mm-hmm. of those individuals, right? Mm-hmm. And so if we can get to a point, we can find, we can identify our common values, our common concerns, we can begin the conversation there rather than from a place of you are my adversary, mm. <laughs> right? And I must destroy you, right? Or I must get you to see the world my way, right? Like that's just not a that's not the most helpful way to to work from. I and I I'm saying this as somebody who used to you know do all the protests and you know do sleep out in the streets and do all the things, right? And mm. what I realize is that no one's mind has actually ever been changed by like. Uh, a sign, and I'm not saying no. I want to be clear. There is a time and a place for for social movements, right? And I think that um, they have their own purpose, absolutely, to bring awareness. And so I'm I'm not anti anti demonstration, um, but I when it comes to building community, right? Like there's again, it's a yes and. I think there's a lot of entry points that we can can take to build um, collaboration and get us moving in the same direction. But at the very least, we, we have to get on the same page with the fact that there's a problem to begin with. Mm. And I think, you know, 
some of us are denying that there's a problem because we are overwhelmed and we don't know what the solution is. So it's a lot easier just to say, well, there isn't a problem. So <laughs> because if I have accepted that there's a problem and I don't know how to solve it, now I have cognitive dissonance, right? Like now this is really bumping up against how I view myself as a good person, right? Um, right. If, I, if I can't do something to fix this problem. So, so really it's getting, getting at the values and getting at what the fear to shift is. What, what is the fear um, or the unanswered questions? Because usually when we're aversive to something, it's, it's typically because we don't have enough information. Mm -hmm. um, so that's my assumption. I could yeah. do that. <laughs> no, I know. Actually, I think you hit on a really important point here that I just want to emphasize for listeners, which is sometimes it's explicit what the value is in the other person and other times it's implied and part of yeah. the skill of being an influencer is being able to anticipate it right like mm -hmm. anticipate the questions you're going to get ahead of time anticipate the potential pushback you know anticipate you know what might be the underlying value for that person mm -hmm. that you can find common ground connect with and you know get an opening or find an opening, you know, Absolutely. If they care about family or they care about, mm -hmm. um, you know, I love that you brought safety into this, like mm -hmm. sustainability should be in equity should be everybody's job, just like safety is on a manufacturing yeah. floor, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, of, of course, everybody wants to go home safe at the end of the night, uh, you know, also people want to go home feeling a sense of value, feeling that, mm -hmm. you know, that they're, I mean, maybe not everyone wants to feel like they're contributing to something bigger or better, but that at least how they're spending their time is yeah. appreciated. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That simple. Absolutely. Oh, well, thank you so much, August, for the time. I know you're on um, your vacation, so I appreciate you taking the time. Is there any last um, words of advice or any further learning you want to suggest for listeners? I guess it would just be a... Um... Just, just the words and the reminder that, you know, while yes, like both of these issues around sustainability, around addressing, you know, social justice and, and supporting social justice, and uh, those are all very urgent issues. And yet we, we, we don't always do our best work from a place of urgency, right? We don't do our best work from a place of overwhelm, overwork, um, so I'd like to remind us that we don't have to boil the ocean, but we do have to plant seeds, mm -hmm. right? And so the, the, just like with anything, the little stuff is the big stuff. The little stuff in everyday relationships is, is the big stuff, right? Mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're bickering every day with your partner and yet you go on a magnificent trip once a year versus you never go on a trip, but you have these micro moments of affection and love and pouring into each other's cup, you're going to have a much better relationship, right? Mm, yep. Same thing, same thing when it comes to sustainability, like the little stuff is the big stuff. Mm. Same thing when it comes to combating microaggressions and, and, and implicit and, and, you know, implicit, uh, uh, explicit racism and discrimination, ableism, having those micro moments of belonging, of, of micro affirmations to, to other people, that that absolutely can support the movement, and so I, I I would, you know, I would I would caution folks to not caution, but I, I invite people to consider where they can find their their micro entry points. Mm -hmm. um, think about 
how they can keep themselves in this in this race, right? Which means engaging in some self care, uh, so you you're prepared to stay in it for the long haul because you know it's a it's a marathon, not a sprint. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's yeah. We don't have to boil the ocean, but we do have to plant seeds. Yeah. I love that analogy of seed planting as an ecologist <laughs> and a gardener. It's like, it just yeah. resonates so much, right? Like you don't have to always see the change happen. Just know that you might be planting a seed that you might need to water on occasion. Oh gosh. And oftentimes we don't, I think anyone right. who works with, with young people will tell you that you are planting seeds that you may never see. And you just have to trust that there will be other experiences that the young person will have that will continue to water them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they will, you know, be, you know, get stronger and stronger with every experience. Um, yeah. And, and because the more we have this kind of, I'm the only one that can do it. It's all on me. We, we then move into martyrdom. Mm-hmm. And again, that's also not getting into the space of martyrdom produces this, this feeling that uh, of resentment, right. That, that mm-hmm. well, now I'm not being celebrated for my martyrdom, even if we don't realize it consciously. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, just, just focusing in on like, not, not viewing, you know, one another as adversaries, but finding that common ground, finding those shared values and working from there and figuring out what are our micro entry points to, to this work? How do we stay in the game? Right. Well, thank you again so much, August. I really appreciate um, you and all the work that you're doing in our community and all over the globe. <laughs> so thanks again. Thank for you. Time. Thank you. Thanks, Jen. Thank you so much for being here. I want to remind you that you are powerful and you have the ability to make the change that you want to see in the world. Trust in yourself, believe in yourself, find a great mentor, whatever you need to be the change agent you are meant to be. I also want to invite you to be a member of our community. If you are not already a Wisconsin Sustainable Business Council member, I invite you to join our community to learn, to measure and improve, and to connect with your community, with the other changemakers across Wisconsin pioneering change. You can find us at wisconsinsustainability.com. Thanks again for listening. If there's anything we can support you with, please reach out.